Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascends on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He, do, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the Father and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statutes of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is in the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now please turn with me to 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Brother CJ. We give thanks for you and Allison and how well you serve the church family. And we turn today again. This is now, I think, our fifth week. Thinking about this all-important question, what is the church? See, I think there's actually great confusion in our land about what the church actually is. People are inclined to think of it as a building or some kind of class that I'm leading uh, or some kind of motion that you have to go through in order to uh, placate God. Uh, but rather what we've been trying to do is displace those false notions by seeing the church as the people of God on mission. Uh, that God has given us a task, that he's called us to this time in this place. He's called us to Christ. He's put us here so that we may do the task that he's put before us. As we've looked at a number of weeks, you say the history of God's people is uh, loaded with examples of, of uh, folks coming together and getting it wrong. Uh, God will say things like, well, yeah, you're gathering, but your hearts are in the wrong place. Or, yeah, you're gathering, but you've missed it all. And what we said, wouldn't it be a great tragedy? A great tragedy indeed if the short time we have to be the church 
that we would miss what God wants us to do. Not only because it would be disobedient to God, but you think about where we're at. What a wonderful time it is to be a Christ follower. Where the culture's forgotten about him and is plowing the other direction, you say, and he's put us in this time in, the, in these uh, suburbs with such a great uh, potential for cultural impact. You say, it's a great time to be a Christian in this part of God's world. But we've got to get it right. And we've got to think about it. And we've got to put what God tells us to do into action. So you say, well, what then is, like, how would you summarize the, the real mission of the church? If you had to boil it down, we're used to complicated mission statements, but what we've said is, E squared, say a letter and a number, E to the second power, two E words, edification and evangelism. Say, what do we mean by edification? It's a word for building one another up in the faith. You see in Ephesians 4, great uh, section on what the church is, how many times that language is used, right? That we're doing this so that we may be built up to being full in Christ, to really knowing him and loving him. If you're one in the room, as most of us, I trust, are, you've recognized that you, uh, you know, need Jesus and that you surrender to him. You say, what we then are doing is building one another up in that truth so that we can be more mature followers of him. Edification. And in turn, evangelism. That God wants his people to show the non-believing world what it's like to have Jesus as king. So we're going to scatter from this place in a short time, and we're going to go back to our different spheres and our homes with our families and our places of work. And the idea is to say, oh, that's what it means to have Jesus as your king. Look at that person. They, they understand grace. And look at that kindness. What do they have that we don't have? Say, well, we, we have Jesus, that we're not great in and of ourselves, but we recognize Jesus as king. Are we going to do that work? Now, I've not talked much about this, but you say, why is it E squared? And the reason I presented it this way is to think in terms rather of multiplication rather than addition. You see, the idea is that the more the church builds itself up in love, that that will encourage our evangelism. And as we uh, evangelize, right, tell others about Jesus, that in turn is going to edify the church. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But think about them feeding off one another, uh, helping one another, not two separate things, but two intertwined things. We're building one another up in faith, those of us who are Christians, to full maturity, as is said here, so we're no longer babes in Christ, but rather confident followers of Jesus, more like him, and we're telling the non-believing world Again, about the great kingdom and what God has done in Jesus. That's the mission of the church, to edify one another and to evangelize. Now, what we've been spending time on, you say, well, that's simple enough, you know, read it everywhere. We've been thinking about the types of behaviors and actions that put that mission into practice, right? It's one thing to have a mission statement, but how do we behavioralize the mission? You say, well, we do a lot of stuff here at the church. You know, pastor wants us thinking about things and doing things. But to see that those are all aimed at this end of building each other up and telling the world about Jesus. So the behaviors, these God-honoring actions, actions that fulfill the mission, we put in a, in a scheme, the six pillars. Very simple at, at one level, say really just uh, seven concepts in our scheme, but I, I trust that they'll be very rich indeed and very um, in, empowering to the church family. So remember we started, and I know this is redundant, but I, it's very I do this more for myself than for you because if you run into me at the supermarket this week and you say, well, what are the pillars again? And I'm not able to ramble these off. You'd be very disappointed. So I'm a firm believer in repetition, uh, but to say very simple concepts, but hopefully very rich, and you'll see derived exactly from Scripture. So where we started, the foundation of the pillars, you look up there, you see the word repentance. That repentance is the word that means turn or change your mind. And what 
Scripture tells us, right? Jesus, the first thing he does when he preaches, he tells the people to repent. You go to the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. What's he saying? The church needs to repent. Repent is changing our mindset from my selfish disposition, right? That I come into the world saying no thanks to Jesus and putting on Jesus. That I like that word because it's really, it's a microcosm of the gospel. It's the ultimate declaration that my sin is serious. See, everywhere else you go in, in, in the world today, what you're going to hear is actually we're pretty clever people. You're doing great. All the problems are what we'd call on a, a cosmetic institutional level. You know, you've got bad politics. You've got bad economics. You've got bad education. If we just tweak those things here, we're going to have a more egalitarian society. It's going to be absolutely perfect. Biblical diagnosis is much different. We're not a bunch of people who are clever and, you know, are, are great and, and God's, you know, we do everything perfect. Rather, what, what it says is the real problem in the world is not so much political or economic or educational. Those are symptoms of the problem, but the real problem is the crookedness of my own heart. That given the opportunity, I'm going to pump my fist at God and, quite frankly, all of you, and I'm going to do what I want. You say, that's what we mean by sin. It's a self-centered view of the world to say, all of this is here for me, and hopefully I'll have about 80 years uh, to go about any way that I please. You say, no, biblical view of the world is to say my sin is extremely serious, and there's nothing I can do to claw my way up to God, but I needed help from the outside. And I recognized that that help came, and God putting forth Jesus, right? That you say, God sent his son, right? He put him forth in history, and it's all that I have in him. That's really the, the foundational understanding of, of all that we are as Christians, right? That my sin is serious, that I need Jesus. I recognize what God has done in Christ, and he's my only hope. So on that foundation, you say, we can have all the instructions you want to the church, all the ethics, but if we're not really committed to Jesus, that all we're doing is challenging our flesh. So the conviction of sin, this is a distinctive of the true church. The distinctive of the true church is that I am convicted of my sin. My sin is serious. I could only be helped by Jesus, and he's all that I have. And that, that proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one who rescued us, what does he say? Matthew 16, on the proclamation of who Jesus is, uh, his church will be built. So that's the foundation. Jesus is at the center. We turn away from ourselves each and every day towards him. From there, we go to corporate worship. Why did you come here today? Uh, because this is what you always do on a Sunday. Uh, because you, you have a few less years in purgatory. Or, um, you know, you want to get a little bit of values into your children's minds. You say, well, I would, I would say no. That God calls us into the covenant community. It's a gift to us to mature us. They were like a human body being one, a unit, made up of a lot of different parts. And when we're working properly, you got to love that in verse 16, right? When we're functioning properly, we're going to build each other up in love. A lot of examples these days, church is a place of dysfunction. Church is a place of politics. Church is a place of performance. You say, I know there are a lot of examples, but look at the vision that God gives us for the church. A place of strength and confidence and love, and a place to be brought under the word of God, and convicted, and challenged, and encouraged. You say, what a thing the church could be in our time, right? A place really loving each other well, and building each other up. That's what we're about, a properly functioning body, pushing each other to a greater devotion of Christ. That's why we're here, to love one another, and build one another up as a properly functioning body. Now, from there, we talked about all this language of maturity, right? To be a mature person in Christ, to no longer be babes in Christ, to grow up in every way. Is that going to happen 
in 65 minutes a week. He said, think of anything else you want to be really good at. A sport, a competency. Say, well, I'm going to give it 65 minutes a week and that's it. And when it comes to the Bible, well, 25 minutes or however long Shaw decides to preach, he said, that's not going to cut it. Say, what we're to do is to have personal devotions. God invites his people, right, this great privilege. He gives us means of grace. He tells us, there are things that I have given you to grow you up and to, uh, for me to channel my grace and my strength into your life, right? Prayer and the reading of God's word. He tells us plainly, he says, reading God's word, right? We come to it with an expectation by aid of his Holy Spirit. What we're told is that reading God's word is going to mature us, John 17, 7, or 17, 17. And also he says, I'm going to make simple people wise. They plainly said, right? I want to be a more wise person. I need God's help in this complicated world. We've got difficult decisions to make this week. God's entrusted me with children. How am I going to raise them? Loads of things. I need God's wisdom. What he says is, you can turn to me and use these means of grace, and I'll channel into your life my wisdom and my courage and my strength to goad you along. So we take personal devotion seriously. The people of God sitting under his word and praying to him throughout the week. Last week, talked about small groups. Some of you say, well, I don't know about small groups. I read my New Testament. I don't see that language anywhere. God doesn't say, do, you know, do a small group. I say, why are small groups so necessary? Because what is everywhere in the New Testament is a church caring for one another, bearing each other's burdens, forgiving each other, confessing our sin. You think of that and say, well, it's not just that that's not going to happen on a Sunday morning alone, but the image always is God's people doing life together. Uh, you say, well, I, you know, how, can I just, you say, it's probably not going to happen unless I commit myself to something outside of Sunday mornings, a place where I can be cared for and care for others. So we also talked about hospitality and what a comparative advantage that would be in a world in, in which we find ourselves, right? Do I view my home and the, the, the gift that God's given me there to welcome other Christians so that we might be unified? Another way of saying that is, can anyone be anonymous in the church? So is that got to be an anomaly throughout? You say, well, I, I belong to Providence Church, but I don't know anybody and nobody knows me. That'd be very sad, wouldn't it? Or yet again, you say, you've got a problem in the middle of the night. I mean, you've got a real crisis. You need help. I hope the answer to that, say, who's going to help me? I hope everyone here would say, you can't know everyone equally, but i got like 10 people who would, who would come to my aid because I belong to a church that's building itself up in love, that understands we have to practice the one another's, and I know them well enough, I'm connected well enough to them that I could call upon them, and quite frankly, that we'd like to be called by them. If they're in a crisis, you get the idea. No one is anonymous in a church, that we love each other, we care for each other's burdens, we do what we can to help one another. So today we come then, uh, these things being said. So, you know, walking you through, we turning to Jesus. We see the seriousness of our sin. We got a church family building itself up in love, never going to quite arrive this side of heaven, but we're, we're, we're going there. Place of courage and realignment so we can go into the world and live for him. We're taking time with the Lord each and every day, asking for his wisdom and his grace, all that he channels into us, that we're meeting in a small group or some subset of the church family so that I can care for one another, uh, another person, so that I can really practice this love. Today, then, we come to this other very important idea. So finally, long intro today. Long intro. You all good? Okay. A healthy church serves one another. Last week, a healthy church cares for one another. A healthy church serves one another. 
in verses I've not talked that much about, but are at the heart of our passage, take a look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or arguably the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So who here, I ask you, who is doing the equipping and who is doing the works of the ministry? So what you'll notice on all the offices in verse 11, right, the apostles, we know who they were, the 15 people who knew Jesus personally, the prophets, we know who they were, right, Jeremiah and Isaiah, you've got evangelists and the shepherd teachers. What do all those offices have in common? You say they are those who preach the word of God. So the office holders in the church who preach the word of God were told, a, a, very clear here, right, the purpose of that is to equip the faithful so that they, in turn, can do ministry. So you ask, so what does Shaw think he's doing up there? Does he just try to, you know, use rhetorical devices? He's been reading some Demosthenes this week, and he wants to unleash it on all you people. Say, no, what, what I want to do, firstly, exalt the Savior, humble the sinner, but really, I'd say we want to equip, equip the Christians so that they can then do the works of the ministry. So who does the ministry in the church? They say, well, every one of us does. Now, how is this connected to serving? If those of you who have the NIV, yours will read this, where he gave the teaching offices, to equip the saints for the work of service. Say, why is that so important? Because what we see is ministry and service are etymologically related. So you think, well, that person's ministering. What we really mean is they're serving. So you can read this, that, that the, those in teaching offices, they unveil who Christ is in the word of God, right? Present Christ in his greatness, humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, with the aim of equipping God's people so that they in turn can do ministry to serve one another and do what God would have them do. So there it is right in the heart, central to a healthy practice in the church that we serve one another. We do the work of the ministry, each one of us who is in a local church family. Now you need a little bit more to think about here as I did. Say if Jesus... Uh, you think about Jesus' leadership style. Say there's never been a greater leader than Jesus. You can model, I mean, read a lot of secular leadership books that have been very helpful to me, but you say all of it, you know, really is embodied by the person of Jesus. You say, you just have to say, what's Jesus' leadership style? You'd say he is a servant leader. Listen to what he says. The Lord Jesus came, and he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I came so that I might serve. Or again, Luke twenty two thirty seven. I am among you as one who serves. Famous passage that we did for the communal reading. Remember, Jesus came in the form of a servant. You say, if Jesus' overarching presentation to the world is one who's postured himself as one who serves other people, it'd probably be good for God's people to take that seriously, right? That we should then, in turn, serve other people. Now, in that vein, I think it's important to distinguish, differentiate between serving and servitude. Because we hear serving, and we think, well, that 
is really coming from a position of weakness. You say, I don't, I don't want to be a servant because that means that I'm being trampled upon. In fact, I work my whole life so that I'm not down there. I want to get to a place in life where others serve me. At least that's the default position of a lot of our flesh. To say serving is something for the weak. I want to be served. That's the position of strength. What Jesus would teach us is, no, no it's actually the exact opposite. That when we posture ourselves to serve, we're operating from a position of strength and confidence with the aim of building others up, and dare we even say to make them better than, than ourselves. You can see that? That voluntarily serving, that we don't do it out of guilt, uh, we don't do it uh, with lack of joy, but what is taught here to us is that God has given us gifts, and out of the strength that he's provided, that we posture ourselves to give, to give all that we can to make others better, and that comes out of strength and out of out of confidence, that it's not something uh, that is done only for those who are trampled upon, but voluntarily from those out of what God has given them, out of a position of confidence and strength. Now, here's where I'll make just a, a couple of remarks about these ideas. You know, I try to do this as I feel like I get, but you always want to tie a bowstring between what the Bible says and the culture, and I feel, you know, it's always important to do this. What does this have to do? You know, last week we thought about loneliness and the importance of small groups and hospitality. It's very clear to me. Problems, social ills uh, often are met with the clear, uh, clear directives of the Bible. So first, I'm going to just make two points here, connect this to the culture. Everything we read, I'm reading, you're reading, we're not doing well emotionally and psychologically, which is quite a diagnosis of the wealthiest most prosperous people the world has ever seen. Every indication is we're going the wrong way. Now, when we're not doing well emotionally, our default position is to start to go towards self-pity, right? To say, well, why aren't more people doing things for me? Then look at how, uh, you know, what a terrible place that I'm in, and I, uh, you know, am a victim, and I want everybody to start doing things for me, and that, in turn, is going to help me feel a little bit better about myself. I think what we're supposed to see, though, is that the best thing we can do for our mental health might be to serve other people. And when you read the sociologists on this, they'll say things like, why does serving others and volunteering at places help you mentally and, in fact, make you a lot happier? And this is why. Because it gives you a purpose. See, the great quest for human purpose, right? To say, well, I'm just waiting back and waiting for everybody to solve my problems. Now, I don't want to be down on that because I talked about that last week. We all need to be cared for. We all need to carry each other's burdens, and we want to do that as a church. But there's another side of this to say, could it be that serving others, using my gifts that God has given me to flow into the lives of others is going to give me a purpose and actually lift me mentally and psychologically? You know, I think of Jesus' words, Acts 20, verse 35. Paul quotes Jesus, and he says, why did Jesus say it's more blessed to give than receive? There's something to that, right? God's given each one of us uh, certain abilities and things that he's entrusted to us as stewards, and when we use those from the strength that he provides out of that position of confidence that it's going to lift us and give us a purpose. We need that worthy pursuit. So serving helps us mentally. Second connection to culture is that serving is really good at connecting you to other people. Have you noticed that? When you link arms with other people from the church in a mutual task, even if they're very different from you, uh, you have a certain connection with them. I, 
I see uh, Barry here this morning. I'll never forget meeting Barry and uh, Dan Molina, Barry Shamila and, and Dan Molina because it was a very early on. I was a, uh, just came as a pastor here. And uh, we were doing a service project painting in a very narrow hallway with an oil-based paint. I mean, it was a very potent paint, as I remember it, and we needed to use this paint because of the conditions of the walls. But I'm in this little hallway with these guys, you know, the fumes. I said to Dan Molina, I said, if my sermon's incoherent tomorrow, you know, this is why. This service, probably, these fumes are getting to my head. But I have such fond memories. You say, I didn't know them well, but I always remember where I met them, that we were painting a wall together. Um, why does a church have a work day? like our, we don't need to have a work day we we could easily you know we, we could pay for somebody to plant our bushes but what we find over and over again is that the guys the families who plant the bushes together actually become more connected and the people who clean the dumpster area actually become connected serving is very very good a mutual work connects you to other people and you say this right through sociology somebody like Emil Durkheim right the father of sociology talked about organic solidarity this is a very obvious point you work with somebody you link arms in a common task you're going to start to have a fondness for them so God in his wisdom right think of what he's done here he says look a good healthy church is going to be one who serves you're going to serve one another Serving, far from saying, actually, it's going to deplete me, when we understand God's gift and where it flows out of is actually going to give me a purpose and help me uh, get to a more healthy place. And while I'm at it, it's going to bind us together. So a healthy church serves one another. What's the preacher doing? The preacher is equipping the people, hopefully, for acts of service to one another so that we're devoted to one another and we make sacrifices for one another. I think a phrase you'll hear around here before I move on. We serve with our time, our talent, and our treasure. So we give of our time, we give of our natural abilities, and we give of what God has entrusted us with resources. And I must say, all of you, very generous church in a lot of ways, but we must uh, keep this on the forefront. It's not a, a peripheral issue, but serving is central to uh, what we want to do. A healthy church serves. Okay, bold heading number two. You'll notice God gives spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. Have a look at verses 7 and 8 again. But grace was given to each one of us, the Christians, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That Jesus gives gifts through the Holy Spirit to every Christian in the assembly. You say, well, is that the only part? No, it's everywhere in the Bible. Have a read of 1 Corinthians 12 this week, or Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, or our second reading, 1 Peter 4, especially from verse 10. You say, all over the place, we're told that, that the, the Lord gives gifts to the Christians so that we might build one another up. And I say here, these are not, as the aforementioned, natural abilities. Some of us sing better than others. Some of us have more athletic abilities. Say those kinds of things, yes, they're natural abilities. We should use them to God's glory. But spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are different. That God gives people gifts so that the church might be built up. So three subpoints here. You think about these this week. God in his kindness distributes the gifts as he pleases. Not only the verse that I read, but how about this? All gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he, God, wills. Or again, Romans 12, 6, the gifts differ according to the grace given us. Say, why is this such an important point that God gives the gifts? All abilities and gifts come from the Lord. 
So you think there's any room in the church for comparisons about giftings or jealousy or envy? Say, may it not be. But rather may we see this great promise that God has given the Christian's gifts as he wills in his sovereignty in this time in this place to build up this body. Say, it's marvelous the view that I get of things. I wish you could have my view of things like how administration works in our church. See, a lot of people think, well, you know, Shaw gives the sermons and that's the whole thing that happens during the week. You know, he's back there and just uh, say, you know the kind of administration it requires to run our church? Thank the Lord for Kathy and Lisa, Dawn, the volunteers. And you know what? So you read 1 Corinthians 12, you're reading the spiritual gifts, and administration is on the list. Is say some have a gift of administration, a spiritual gift of administration to help the church function. Boy, aren't we happy. Say, it'd be a real shame if we said, well, you know, that person has this gift and I have this gift and we're constantly thinking, you say, well, you know, really that's an assault on God because what we're told is God determines the gifts. We've already been over the fact that he's determined our times and places. He's brought us into this church family. He knows what we need. We need to determine what our gifts are as good gifts from him and then to use them for his glory. Hey, second subpoint here. The spiritual gifts are always to be used relationally and as a blessing to others. Have a read there. So 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, right, in the form of a gift, for the common good. For the common good. Or 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. You see, we again get way off base on spiritual gifts. Because you'll have some pockets that uh, will exercise a spiritual gift and it's done more in a form of, hey, look at me, Every, everybody should, should listen to me or it's even you know, a personal experience or a personal authentication of the faith. Say every time spiritual gifts are mentioned, they're mentioned to be used relationally in order to serve and bless others. That in other words, your gift is not so much a validation to you to elevate your importance in the church, but your gift is given to you so that you might bless and serve other people. Finally, on the subpoint here, using our spiritual gift to serve others is a great privilege and a joy. That it's not a burden. You say you think of, yeah, of course, serving is sacrificial. Uh, serving by definition is sacrificial, but don't we see this to say the Lord Jesus is king? He's made such a world where he tells his people, right, say, you join me in the mission, this eternal mission, the most important mission any of us can ever be about. I've given you gifts and I've equipped you, right, in order that you would build up the body of Christ so that the king would be glorified. Can you see how this would give great joy? And I think you'll find that. I think when you link arms with others and you uh, find what the Lord wants you to be doing at anything in life, you say, I find what I'm supposed to be doing. There's a great joy and a great sense of privilege. Yeah, does it come at a cost? You bet it does. It's sacrificial to serve others, but there's also a great privilege and a great joy involved. Okay, finally here, I say very practically, how can I find out my gifts and how can I serve this church? And uh, I don't know what, I don't, I've never made much of spiritual assessments, spiritual gift assessments. Uh, I'll just run you through my grid and see what you think. I'm not against them, but this is uh, the kind of uh, process that I've always uh, went through thinking about your spiritual gift. So for starters, as a Christian, if you've sur surrendered to Christ, 
you've agreed about your sin and you've said, God, I come to you on your terms, which is Jesus. You've recognized what's been done for you on the cross. You've been born again. You've crossed over from death to life. You have the Son. Say, then when you receive the Holy Spirit, you received at least one spiritual gift for the building up of the body, right? That much is clear. To each one, I've given a gift. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift to be used for the building up of Christians. Secondly, pray to the Lord to make your spiritual gift clear. God, how can I best be used? My time is short. I've got a lot of responsibilities in life. Help me to make the most of it by identifying my gifts so that I can serve this family. Thirdly, I would ask, what do you have a passion for? <laughs> What's your desires? Say, God's given us our desires. You know, you can think about some things. I mean, event planning, you know, I'm c terrified by event planning. Say, I would never do something like that or something administratively heavy. I don't have a desire for it. I don't have a passion for it. Say, maybe not a good place for me to serve. Where's my passion? Say, what do I want to do? Do you see other people serving in an area of church? You say, I think I'd really like to do that. Those are really good questions to ask. Fourth, fourthly, ask close brothers and sisters what they think your gifts are. Read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Help them look around. We'll go through very practically coming up in a moment. Have them say, what do you think I ought to be doing to help this church? And oftentimes they'll speak truth into your life. And then finally, try serving and see if God blesses it. Say, you've got an internal sense of something? See if there's an external sense. So very simple grid, right? If you're a Christian, you have a gift to serve the church. Pray that God would make that clear to you. What's your desire? Where do you want to serve? Ask those closest to you what they think you are good at, where you could serve. Try serving in that area and see if God blesses it. Friends, we have a, a wonderful opportunity now because <laughs> we need a lot of help in a lot of areas. It's a good problem to have. So you can serve in children's ministry, worship ministry, presuming you're... Uh, musical, uh, tech ministry, youth ministry, small groups, assimilation, greeting, coffee, ushering, cleaning between services, uh, something like playing volleyball with international students on those Friday evening sessions. Say there are loads and loads of areas for the church family to serve at Providence. I don't have time to highlight all of these, but I want you to think about them and their importance. You think about children's ministry. You know about the 4 to 14 window? Say very clear statistically, most people will come to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. I'm really thankful 25% of the souls in our building are under the age of 9. Say if there's an important area, think about serving those young ones. We need competent people. We need our very best people to be looking after those little ones and teaching them the gospel. We'd love to have children's ministry during the second hour. You know, said this is new, relatively new, a second hour. Say it's 36 slots a week. Praise God, 36 slots a week, but we can't have a children's ministry unless the people of the church are moved to serve there. On Wednesday mornings, you know, there's going to be a ladies' Bible study. It would be fantastic if the young stay-at-home moms could come to that Bible study, but in order for that to happen, we need four people to volunteer for 10 consecutive Wednesday mornings or a combination thereof. So I'm challenging you, church family, to think about serving. Is it plain there for you that God wants us to serve one another? Are there opportunities to serve? Are they really important ways to serve? You bet they are. How about something like tech ministry? You say the camera? 
in a lot of ways our website, what are you going to do? If you move into Avon and you're thinking about, well, I want to you know, know what, what churches are around, what you're going to do is you're going to go to our website and see what a service is like. Well, in order to see what a service is like, we've got to have somebody working the camera, which requires a volunteer. Say, how about something like greeting? You know, I love the greeting ministry because what you'll find over and over, pastor can lay a real way. I mean, I can preach a really bad sermon, but if you get a warm greeting, you generally think it's a pretty good church. Greeting ministry is hugely important. You say you come in and, again, nobody says hi to you. Church feels a little bit stony and cold. Or do you say, no, we've got a lot of people there that are actually quite keen to meet new folks and to greet them in the Lord's name and to build them up in the faith. Friends, lots of places to serve. It's really important that we posture ourselves this way. Jesus came as a servant. How can we do it? How can we start even easing our way in? So again, healthy church serves one another. Jesus is our example here that we want to be equipped, building each other up in love, caring for each other, serving one another, firing on all cylinders so we're a properly working body so that God may be glorified and Christ may be lifted high. So I'll invite Jim up and pray. Lord, thank you for this great calling that we would serve one another out of what you've given us, out of uh, your strength, that we would uh, approach others here to say, how can I use what I've been given to bless them, to serve them, to, to make, make them better than, than anything that they might be on their own? How, how can I position myself in that way to make others better, to make them more mature followers, to help the ministry go forward? Lord, help us to recognize you've given us spiritual gifts. That you've equipped us. You've not just given us the instruction without equipping us, but you have equipped us. Help us to be discerning about what our spiritual gifts are, to plug in and to drive forward this uh, great and wonderful eternal mission that you've given us. So Lord, help us. Only you, by your spirit, can make us into a properly working body. That is our aim. That is our supreme aim. In Christ's name, amen.